to get your Bibles and to stand, and uh, Austin is going to come, and he's going to read Scripture for us today. I want to thank him for doing that, and then we'll pray, and we'll jump right into God's Word, okay? Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 4. So I exhort, exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Thank you. Lord, we, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the privilege of, um, Lord, hearing from you. And I ask that today as we consider this two-year anniversary, Lord, as we consider the church, as we consider what it is that you desire to do in and through the church, and uh, Lord, what the church really is, and Lord, just how you, how you give us insight, Lord, to what you want the church to be. Allow us, Lord, to be humble, to be teachable, and Lord, to guide our thoughts, and to, um, Lord, just have a, a wonder at the beauty of what your church is, and the privilege of being a part of your church. And Lord, I just ask today that as your messenger, that I would simply, uh, Lord, reflect your truth, that you would uh, accomplish your will through me, and Lord, that you would be glorified and you would receive the honor and the praise that you are due. We ask this in now your, your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, today, as you have heard over and over again, is a special day um, that we are setting aside to celebrate two years as Gateway Bible Church. Um, just about three years ago, um, this was the subject of a number of people sitting in a room considering an elephant that they wanted to talk about but weren't sure if they should, and that was some people who were gathered with me and my family praying for us as we were considering what God was going to do in our lives, and I was in the process of candidating at a church uh, down in the Fresno area, and um, God was moving along in that. We were meeting with, uh, as a Bible study and enjoying the fellowship. My family was being encouraged and strengthened and supported by this group of people. And uh, someone broke the silence, so to speak, and said, would, Rod, would you consider starting a church? And I, th I think my answer was, um, I've never done that before. I wouldn't know what to do or how to do it, but I'm open to whatever God um, wants. And uh, from that beginning conversation, as God worked in our lives and as the door closed in Clovis, it became very, very clear that God was at work in this group with a passion and desire to start a new church along the 580 corridor. Our, our vision, our, our perspective, uh, the place that we saw a need was not necessarily in the town or the, 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 the place of Castro Valley, um, but it was the 580 corridor, and in particular, thinking that uh, even as you go over the hill into Pleasanton and San Ramon and Dublin, those areas, this whole corridor was a place where uh, a church needed to be established. And um, I know there's churches all over this area, but when you look at the demographics, just look at Castro Valley, there's over 70,000 people that live in Castro Valley alone. If you add up all the people that go to church, you might have about 60-something thousand people left. There's still a need for a church in Castro Valley, if you understand what I'm saying, just, just looking at the numbers, right? So these people gathered together, and it took a lot of time praying, um, a lot of time planning and thinking and wrestling with what was important as a church. We carefully answered questions like, 
why was God calling us to start a church? Um, was, was God identifying a, a specific passion that would make our church unique in that 580 corridor? How would all this take place? Who would do what? Um, what should be our core values and beliefs? And all those things that are necessary just to say, all right, what is, what is this thing called the church? And it was an exciting time. I mean, it was a fun time. It was an adventure for many of us. And there was a, a core group of 16 people that, that met week after week after week, and then sometimes even multiple times a week to sort through a lot of these issues. And um, uh, it was, it was a, just a great time where we were considering what God was doing in our lives and through us. Now, one of the things that we determined was really important is that the church that God was establishing would, be, would not be led um, in a manner that uh, followed man's ideas. We did not want to consider being a church that was motivated and, and structured and um, pushed ahead with kind of business principles. We wanted to go to the Word of God and to establish what God says in His Word to be the reasons and the way that we would do church and that we would consider the various positions in the church. And uh, that brought us to the realization and the, the, the firm conviction that we would, as we establish this church, have as our desire um, the establishment of a plurality of elders that would oversee the church. Um, now, Gateway Bible Church has always had leaders. Like I said, there was a core group of 16. Seven of those people were men. And what we determined was God puts the responsibility on the shoulders of the men to be accountable to him and to carry out that responsibility of overseeing that, that flock. So we took the men of that core group and established a group called the gatekeepers and we would meet regularly and talk about all the different things and then our wives that were a part of that and there were a couple of others that were part of that core group would would also meet once a month to discuss about the things of the church but the need for a, a biblical eldership was very very clear but hear this we didn't just want to establish elders right at the beginning although there may have been people I think there were men who were already qualified from that perspective, we wanted to make sure that we were doing due diligence and taking our time to make sure that when we would move into an eldership, um, a formal eldership, that we would have been, um, we would have been functioning with, with great integrity and, and, and a purposefulness with the Word of God. And so from the beginning, we had leaders, but we desired to see this this plurality of elders take place. And so in January of 2012, we identified three men that we considered to be prospective elders. Three of them would be Ed Bassard, um, Albert Castaneda, and Matt Dodson. We presented them to you as a church, and we said to you, listen, our, our process is going to be about you know one to two year process. What we want you to see is we want you to see them in functioning in the context of a church, in leadership, handling the word, overseeing home groups, um, overseeing Bible studies, um, just leading in a number of different ways. They would gather, and I would gather with them at least once a month to, to look at the, the actual needs of our church, to be a part of, of training times where we're studying God's Word, where we're discussing various issues, where we're learning together, reading lots of books, many articles, listening to sermons that would help us uh, understand what God is calling us to, shepherding together, counseling together, problem-solving together, exercising hospitality, serving 
teaching, and on and on and on. In other words, they have been serving our church as overseers or shepherds without the official title, purposefully, so that as a church we could see them on display and we could evaluate their giftedness for that calling. And so as we have uh, as we started, it's been now um, a considerable amount of time, 20 months actually, since that began. And I just really believe we're at a place where we need to move from this perspective elder and move into an official church eldership. Like I said, I've watched these men. I've served with them. I've heard their hearts. I've listened to them pray for you and talk about their, their love and their concern for you. Um, we've wrestled with theology together. Um, I've worked with each of them to grow in the areas of, of, of strength and to, to, to develop uh, ways in which they can counteract their areas of weaknesses. I've heard them handle the word of God faithfully. And um, I just really believe we need, we're at a place where we need to move um, into that direction. So why this series? Why this series? In order for us to move forward, I think it's important that we move forward in integrity to God's church and with obedience to God's word. When I say integrity to God's church, in other words, we're not just saying, here are the guys, let's, you know, let's, let's affirm them tomorrow. We want to move, move ahead with integrity, meaning we want to make sure that the church family affirms those who are being brought to them as leaders. Okay? Secondly, we want to be obedient to God's word. And so we want to be careful about how we, how we move ahead. We want to be purposeful about how we move ahead ahead. And one of the ways we can do that is to be sure that we're all aware of the need for, the purpose of, the qualification for, and the responsibilities of an elder, an overseer, a shepherd. All those words are used interchangeably. So I believe it would be wise for us to take time to study together the subject of shepherding the flock. Now, let me invite you to go to that passage again, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 1 through 4. And I, as we read through this, I want us to recognize that there are lots of places that we can go to look at the subject of eldership and it's the, the leadership's responsibility to the church. But for, for our purposes this morning, and really this is kind of like our, our passage, our theme passage for the series, I want us to begin here. And I want you to notice as we read through this that there are actually three groups or, or three individuals that are identified here. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." And what we have here then are three, I want to say groups or individuals. First of all, we have the elders, plural, who are to shepherd the flock. That's what the passage says. Elders who are called to shepherd. How? Willingly, eagerly, as examples. Secondly, we have a flock that needs shepherding, <laughs> right? If you have shepherds that are called to shepherd the flock, or elders that are called to shepherd the flock, then obviously there's a flock that needs to be shepherded, and we need to consider what that means. And that might be hard for you to say, well, do I really need to be shepherded? What, what does that mean? Okay. 
And then we ultimately have a chief shepherd that we serve. I, I actually put it a little differently in my notes here. A chief shepherd to whom we are all accountable. And in particular, those elders are accountable. So, what are the goals then? And just kind of let's, let's flesh these out in three different ways that reflect those three different groups. First of all, we need to take note of the importance and the beauty of God's church. The importance and the beauty of God's church. Secondly, we want to see the ultimate example of Jesus, the chief shepherd. Now, God's church is beautiful. Jesus is used here in the passage we just read as the ultimate one to whom we are all accountable, and he's identified as the chief shepherd. So we want to have an understanding of what does shepherding look like from Jesus' perspective or from God's perspective. How do we understand what shepherding is all about? Right? And then the third thing we're going to do is seek to understand the role, the function, the qualifications of those who are called to shepherd God's flock in a way that is, uh, that is faithful to God. Okay? So we're, we're going to start then today with this uh, understanding and this seeking to understand the beauty of God's church. And, you know, just the way things kind of unfolded as God developed uh, our process here. We got done with Haggai, and I knew this was going to be the next thing we were going to deal with. And today we're talking about the church, and we're talking about the beauty of the church on a day that we celebrate the church. It's a wonderful thing how God kind of worked it together. So there are three things or three areas that we want to pursue this morning. We want to examine the scriptures to see how they define the church, how they describe the church, and then to see what the scriptures teach about God's desire for the church. Okay? So, let's look at God's definition of the church here. Before we get there, though, I just, just want to say this. There's something beautiful about the church, and we're, we're looking here at the beauty of God's church. When uh, Ladies, when you got a diamond ring, if you are at that place where you got a diamond ring, when you looked at that diamond ring, did you think it was beautiful? Did you hand it back and say, it needs to be more beautiful? Did you do that? Um, probably not. You probably got it, and you're like, oh, look at this, you know? And you probably walked, you know, for the first couple of weeks, you probably walked around like this, you know? And you sat down, you're watching TV, but you're always looking over there and just examining it and watching. Why? Because it was beautiful. Because not only was it beautiful physically, but it was also beautiful because it represented something, Okay? And so God has given us this church, and his church is beautiful. Um, I, I like to watch Discovery Channel every, you know, every once in a while, and one of the things I actually enjoy is watching some shows about nature, and they might show, you know, today is going to be about a particular animal, and they take you to that animal's natural habitat, and they show you how this animal lives, and, and you get really a good understanding of that animal. I'll tell you what, God's creation is beautiful, isn't it? And... Um, uh, you know, we just really, I really enjoy that. And for example, let's just take the cheetah, okay? Um, we learn that its natural habitat is southwestern Africa, eastern Africa, and also um, there's a different kind of cheetah in the country of Iran. Now, in a show, there's going to be lots of video showing the cheetah doing all sorts of different things. But in particular, they're going to show the cheetah running because that is one of the unique and amazing things about a cheetah, that it can run almost up to 70 miles an hour. You believe that? So rule of thumb, if a cheetah is running after you, you're not going to outrun it, okay? Just know that, okay? Um, 
But you'll also see then videos of that, that cheetah chasing down its prey. And guys, as much as you may not like that, there is something amazing about that. Okay? And it's not, you know, we're, you know, the whole cycle of life thing. It's just God's creation. God's created this animal with every piece of equipment to accomplish that task of chasing down its prey. And then, you know, one of the awesome things is you see not only the cheetah killing its prey, but also you see the, the little cubs when they're born, right? And they're bouncing around and rolling over each other and stuff. There's something beautiful about God's creation. So as we take time here um, to look at the church, I want us to see that the church is not just something that we go to, that we just kind of experience. It is incredibly beautiful in God's eyes. And he created in such a way that he wants it to be on display. He wants the world to see him through the lens of the church. And so God has placed us here in this place so that we can be that church for his glory. And we're going to get to that. So we're going to see God's church defined and in its natural habitat. We're going to see it described in many ways, and that will help us gain an understanding of its beauty. And then we're going to identify the purpose or the goal of that church before God, what God desires for that church. So first of all, God's definition of his church. What is the meaning of the word church? Real simple here. The word church comes from the Anglo-Saxon word kirk. You may have actually heard of the kirk on the hills. You might have thought to themselves, what was wrong? Couldn't they spell properly? No, there, it's an Anglo-Saxon word that is church, or cirque actually, but is where our English word church came from, and it means belonging to the Lord. But the actual word church in the Bible that was translated church is the Greek word ekklesia, which literally means called out ones or a, a, an assembling of people together, a congregation. So truly speaking, the church is not a building. A church is a group of people who belong to the Lord and who have been called out by God to assemble together as his followers. Okay? So it's important that we understand at least what the church is. Now, having said that, the, the, the idea of church and the word church is used um, in the Bible, in particular the New Testament, um, in a number of different ways. And I think it's important for us to see them so that we can step back and look at all of them and make some conclusions. First of all, in Ephesians 1.22, it says this, And he, um, this God, put all things under his feet and gave him as our head, talking about Christ there, over all things to the church. So in this passage, we're told this, the universal church of all believers of all time. That is how that word church is being talked about. It's talking about since the beginning of the church age, since, since Jesus Christ left the, the apostles to, to um, establish their ministry, the church began and anyone who came to faith in Christ during that time and up till now, and yet will do, is all part of the church. So this church goes back into history. It reaches forward um, until the Lord calls us home. But it's the universal church of all believers, all time. And friends, that's important for us because that means then that there's a history to the church. And if there's a history to the church it would do us well to do a little study and at least to, to recognize and value that we can learn a lot from a bunch of dead people, okay? And I mean that in the most positive way. 
much of my library is a bunch of dead guys who have, who have been through the mill before me. Yes, in a different context, but they have experienced things in the world being members of the church, and it's valuable for me to learn from them. And as you do some church history, you realize, you know, we have a lot of things already sorted out that through the years the church had to figure out the nature of Christ. How many different kind of debates were there through church history to determine that? You know, there's a number of things that the church can give us value for as we look back into history. So we are connected to the church in 2000 A.D., in 1100 A.D., in 1955, believe it or not. We're still connected to that church, and the church will go on. And the church in the future will probably look a little different than our church today. That's okay. Secondly, um, all believers in an area. Um, This is Acts chapter 9. It's just one example. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. So this would be the same thing as saying the church in America, the church in Russia, the church in Bolivia, just some places that we have some interest. All right, we talk about the church in this large kind of area. It's appropriate. It's right. It's a way we use the word church. Another one will be found in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And so there we get this idea of the church in a particular city. Okay? And so there's, there's a need to recognize that you can properly identify the church of God in a particular city. It's not inappropriate. It is appropriate. Um, and we'll get to the ways in which it can be confusing and mishandled. All right? Because the next one is 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 19. And there are other places we could go for this too. But we're talking here about... Um, the believers in a house congregation, or you might want to say a local congregation. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Paul says, Aquila and Priscilla together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. So, just want to identify that there are these number of different ways the word church is used in the New Testament. But as we've kind of worked our way down from this overarching universal church down to this local body of believers, we recognize that there is a need for a local church, okay? And let's just kind of walk through that together a little bit here this morning to make sure that we understand the significance of that. So we, we, we definitely recognize that there is the church in America and that it's made up of all sorts of different Christians who attend all sorts of different churches in a variety of denominations and yet at the same time can be committed to the same gospel. There may be some different nuances because of denominations. Sometimes denominations are the way they are because a particular denomination has actually turned a corner and and, and rejected the things of God, and so a new denomination is formed because typically reforming a denomination is really, really hard to do. Sometimes it's personalities. There's lots of different reasons why denominations are there. So if someone says, why are there so many denominations out there, and using it as an attack, say, there's good reason. There's good reason because people are concerned about truth, but there's also bad reason depending on the denomination. One example of that, I won't tell you the denomination, but it was one denomination at one point in time, and it was led by two brothers, and the two brothers had a falling out. So now this denomination was almost identical in its name, but it was one denomination this way, another denomination this way. Now there are two denominations, almost identical, and really, philosophically, theologically, 
but those two different denominations are only there because of a personality issue with two brothers. What I understand is that those brothers actually reconciled. I don't know if the actual denomination reconciled because you've got a whole bunch of issues going on there. Okay? That happens. The point is, the church in America can include all of those people that are committed to the same gospel, the same truth, but might flesh things out a little differently in their particular context. But when it comes down to it, it is typically the local churches who are given guidance and responsibility to carry out their responsibilities before God. So maybe the question would be this, who needs the church anyway? Anyone ever said that to you? Maybe you've even thought that to yourself. It will not do for someone to say the following, I do not really need to be a part of any particular church. I'm already part of God's church in America or around the world. They might even say, I am a part of the church in Castro Valley. You've ever heard that expression before? I've heard it countless times. You know, what's, what church do you go to? I'm a part of the church of Castro Valley. What does that mean? Oh, I just decide what church I'm going to go to on a particular Sunday and go there and I'll do youth group here, and I'll do Sunday morning here, and who knows what's going to happen. I realize sometimes when you're looking for a church that you need to kind of go around and see, but I'm talking about a lifestyle that says the church of Castro Valley. But the problem comes when that person attempts to flesh out the various commands that God gives his church and his children. How does one serve the church where there is true equipping taking place? How, who, who counsels you when you get married? Who officiates at your funeral when you pass away? When you are sick and in the hospital, which elders are going to visit you, pray over you, and care for you? I have had the experience when I've gone up to visit someone who is kind of in this church of Castro Valley, and I've run into two other pastors who are visiting the same person. That's confusion, friends. Now, three pastors who care but there's confusion about saying, hey, listen, this is my church. This is the church that I'm committed to. This is the local gathering of, of people that I am, I am pouring myself into and that I am allowing to be overseeing my life. When you come home and are in need of meals, which church takes the responsibility to map out those meals? Who really is caring for your soul? To whom are you submitting as overseers? Under what regular preaching ministry are you feeding? Now, friends, as, as leaders of this church, there are times we sit down and we consider everyone that's in this church and, and where, you know, where is God in their life and, and what can we do to help them and move them and encourage them and strengthen them and grow them. We're thinking specifically about you. Why? Because you're our flock. We care about you. But we're not pouring the same kind of effort and energy into people that are not part of our flock or not regular attenders because we realize their responsibility is to another flock. So those questions are extremely important for us to consider and to direct our attention to uh, this morning. Joining ourselves with a local body of believers is critically important because there is this epi epidemic and it is this kind of, I really don't need to be a part of any particular church. And oftentimes I think that's the people just don't want to be accountable. Or they just don't want anyone interfering with how they are living. And it's much easier to do if I just kind of bounce from church to church to church. So ultimately, people hide themselves in the universal church, or in particular in our context, in the church of Castro Valley, or the church of Hayward, or what it might be, okay? Now, question for you. 
with regard to the church of Castro Valley, with regard to the church of Hayward, or wherever that might be, what does that church actually believe? Is there unity on core beliefs, core doctrines? Is there a passion for a robust gospel that is willing and, and rightfully saying that man is sinful and ultimately is deserving death and God's wrath is going to be poured on them at the same time talking about the grace of God that is the means by which we can be res- reconciled to him? Is there honesty on those issues? Is there unity in how ministry should take place? Is there unity on the role of preaching and teaching in the church? My experience is that when you get a group of churches together to to do a project together, what happens is you kind of fall to the lowest common denominator. It's a really, it's a difficult thing. God has called us to be Gateway Bible Church. And that doesn't mean that we don't respect and we are not kind and we do not encourage other churches around who are also trying to do the same thing. But we have a responsibility to do what God has called us to do, okay? And I, I, I meet with the local pastors once a month for prayer. And thankfully, in Castro Valley, it's actually a really good group of guys. And one of the things that, that is affirmed is we're not here to join together to do ministry. We're just here to pray for one another because we recognize the diversity of, of how we do ministry. But we're committed as men handling the word to pray for one another, Okay? And that's a healthy thing. So although scripture talks about and recognizes the church in various areas and in cities, it is the local church that God is gathering his children into. So we are called out and we are gathered in. We're called out of the world and we're gathered in to the church. Okay? Just think about that image. So it will not do, by the way, to say... I watch XYZ preacher on TV and call him your pastor. It would not do to say, I listen to XYZ pastor on the radio and call him your pastor. He may be a great pastor. I may love him as a pastor. But he will not show up when you're in the hospital. He will not gather money to help you pay your electric bill. He will not marry your children. You get the point here. There's something about a local gathering of people where God allows us to flesh out what what God is calling us to do and be as his church. So God has called us to be gathered in to serve and be served in the context of the local church. And friends, that is a beautiful thing. That your belonging is not some general fuzzy belonging where no one even recognizes that you're there, but that your belonging is concrete. It's where you're rubbing shoulders and in the trenches with people who are committed to the same things that you're committed to. Now, we move from the definition of the church to what I'm calling the description of the church. And we're just going to look at a number of metaphors, a number of images that are used in God's Word to to help us understand and, and contemplate and appreciate the richness of the privilege that God has given us by incorporating us into his church. So what images does the Bible use in describing the church? As we look at these images, I want you to think of three things. Who is the church in the image? How is Christ relating to this image? Is he in it? Is he outside of it? What is it that this image is teaching us about being God's church? Okay, so who is this church or what's the image being talked about? 
How is Christ relating to that image? And what does that image teach us about being his church? And we're going to move through these pretty fast, and we'll try and highlight these. Um, but I hope this helps you, and I hope this just kind of, you sit back in awe of the beauty of what God has created in his church that you get to be a part of. The first thing is found in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. I would encourage you to, with your Bibles to follow along in some of these passages to see them there. But here we have what we've already read. The church is identified here as the flock of God, the flock of God. So I exhort the elders among you as fellow elder and witnesses of the suffering of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, being examples of the flock. So the church is the flock of God, or belonging to, um, or identified with God. Christ is seen here as the chief shepherd, as the one who kind of is, is outside of that local, that actual flock, but he's overseeing the shepherds that are shepherding the flock, so to speak. And the flock clearly needs shepherding, for they are sheep. Now, you don't have to Google too far um, to find out that sheep are in great danger without a shepherd, right? Some of you who may have actual hands-on experience with that. There's danger from outside, all right, the wolves and other animals that would love to eat those sheep or cause damage, but there's also danger from themselves. So there's danger from the outside. There's also danger from themselves. Sheep will follow sheep into danger, even over a cliff. And I've seen a picture, I think this was out in the Middle East somewhere, where there was like over like 300 sheep had gone over this cliff, and one just goes over, and oh, God, I'm going to go, and boom, 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 and there's this pile of sheep at the bottom of this cliff. And the guy just went away for like, you know, like maybe 10 minutes, I think, to get a cup of coffee or something like that, and he comes back, and all his sheep are down this cliff. That's what sheep do. So there's a sense in which sheep need to be um, cared for because they need, you know, they're in danger of themselves. So this metaphor helps us to understand that the sheep or the flock needs to have shepherds who are following the example of and are accountable to Jesus. Okay? This flock of God. It's the first image. There's a lot more we could say, but that's enough for now. Secondly, the family of God. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 is a passage that talks about treating one another and calling the you know, the, the older men fathers, the older women mothers, younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters. And so this language of brother and sister, and we, we use that in the context of the church. This is sister so-and-so, and this is brother so-and-so. We may not use it quite so much. I think in the African-American community, they use that kind of expression all the time, and there's an appropriateness to it, because it's, it's identifying the body of Christ as, as a family, and the family gathering together, and the family looking out for one another. And then the, the, the metaphor changes a little bit because in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and verse 18, um, God is saying here, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty, right? So God is identified there as a father, and we as the church, and the people of the church are considered sons and daughters. And so this, this metaphor is kind of, used in two different ways. But the, the point here is this, that we as the church are one big family. Now, I didn't say one big happy family. I said one big family, all right? Hey, you know what family's like, right? Those of you that 
ever lived in a family know that family can have family squabbles and there can be difficulties and sometimes moms and dads and brothers and sisters, whatever, there are things that happen and don't get along and yet you need to work out those things together. But there is this, this wonderful thing about belonging to a family. You know, my children know that they are Philip's children. They also know that they're also Rodriguez children. And they're still confused as to which one they really want to be, right? Um, you know, do I have a taco or do I have a cup of tea, you know? I, you take both, right? Um, kind of a spicy, powerful tea, all right? Um, all right, the, the other image, though, it reminds us that as this family metaphor is used, we, we see that God is this, this tender, careful father who is loving us but also willing to discipline us, right? And he disciplines how? As a father disciplines the son. And so that image helps us to understand how God relates to us as part of the family that is his church. And this, this image then should increase our love um, for and fellowship with one another. We can sing together that wonderful song, I'm so glad I'm a part of what? The family of God. There is something beautiful and majestic about the family of God. The third image here is the bride of Christ. Guys, this is your only opportunity to be the bride, just so you know that, okay? Um, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her and have having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that he might or that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And so here we see that the leaders in the church who are then stepping in in, in, in the place where Christ would actually be the one who is at work through them for the actual church, they need to carry on the same responsibilities that, that God is doing through them. Their goal then is to have a church that is sanctified and cleansed and, and, and working out the, the, the removal of spots and wrinkles. Now, they're not Jesus. They're not, they're not, they're not the, the groom, but they have responsibility to help that church be what God is is doing or Jesus is doing with that church. And so this, this role is far greater than working for the A's or the Giants or the 49ers. You know, someone say, well, what do you do? I work for the Oakland A's. This year, that sounds like a good thing, right? I work for the Giants. This year, the T-shirt sales are just not quite happening right now, okay? But there's something that we, we pride ourselves with with these kind of ideas. This is, a, this is greater than serving in the military. And my son, I'm so proud of him. He's in the Marines, and, and I, I respect him totally, but there's something about the church that is far greater than that. This role of, of being in leadership in the church and being a part of the church is far greater than even being the president of the United States of America. It is. Do we contemplate it that way? That we, as the church, are the bride of Christ. And how does Christ look at his church? And what is he doing for his church? And so this image should stimulate us to strive for greater purity and holiness and for a greater love for Christ and submission to him. But that also means that we recognize that we are holy, but he is at work 
creating us to be more like what we are. The next one. The branches in the vine, John chapter 5, or 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches, Jesus says. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, is, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And so this passage teaches us that we are totally dependent on Jesus. If we are a branch that is not tapped into the vine, we will not bear fruit. We will not receive the nourishment that we need. And so it's only through abiding that true life takes place. And so this image should cause us to rest in him more fully, to abide, to rest, and to, to just enjoy him being our source of nourishment, him being our source of strength, him being our answer because we're tapped in to him. It's a beautiful picture, a lot more to say, but we move on. Next one, the body of Christ. Now, this metaphor is used in two different ways. So I throw a little caution out to you. In the first way we're going to look at it here, Jesus is the head of the church. The second way the metaphor is used, Jesus is not the head of the church. And that can confuse people because you see a metaphor and sometimes you're like, ah, you know, this is somehow not meshing up because it's used in two different ways. First of all, let's look at the fact that Jesus is the head of the of the church, Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 and following. And he, that's Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. Now, down to verse 24. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. So clearly in that passage, Jesus is the head of the universal church. So he is like the head of a body that controls or gives signals to or gives life to the rest of the body. Without the head, the body does not function. And that image is what is used in Colossians 2, verse 19. Holding fast the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So the picture there is this, that the body can only function and can only do what it needs to do if it has a head. And without a head, it's not going to get the signals of direction and control and understanding that it needs to do what it's been called to do. All right, so in that, in that passage, in that idea, Jesus is clearly necessary as this, I want to say, grand central station, this beginning, this origin, this place where life begins and pours out into the rest of the body. So the image should increase our awareness that it must be Jesus Christ that is guiding us, directing us, and controlling his body, the church. The next one, however, is the body of Christ. I'll call it local. The other one was talking broadly, universal. This one is Local, in particular, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and following. Here, the metaphor changes. Jesus here is not the head, but the object of the whole body's worship. Beginning at verse 21. The eye cannot see to the hand. You see how this could be confusing. If Jesus is the head, how can you be an eye? And it goes on. I have no need of you. 
nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. I'm not talking about Jesus being the head. They're just talking about different parts of the body and how they relate to one another. Uh, we jump down now to verse 24. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. I know when my, my children um, were at elementary school at Redwood Christian Schools, I think it's first grade, they have to learn um, their, um, what's the thing called? What's Victory drill book, that's right. And when they get to page 50, and they get page 50, they get their Bible, right? So the question is, when they go up to get their Bible, do they just take their head up there? Or does the whole body get to go up there? The toe had nothing to do with it. It wasn't like at night the toe was saying, okay, come on, let's get these victory drills down. No, but the toe goes up and celebrates and is recognized somewhat in some way because it's part of the body. It's a whole body thing, right? And so the whole body is what's being talked about here and the importance of every part of the body and even some of the parts of the body we don't even want to think about. Who here is the intestines? Just want to know. We don't want to be that, right? We don't, see, we don't think about those things. We, we typically think of, oh, we want to be seen, right? We want to be hands, eyes. But there are parts of the body that are necessary for a healthy body to exist. So this image should increase our interdependence on one another and our appreciation of the diversity of gifts in the body. Here we see the local church is the local expression of the universal church. So there is this universal church, but it's expressed in local congregations, okay? Letter G, we have a new temple, a new temple. First Peter chapter two, verse five. You yourselves are like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Just, just think about what's being said there. You yourselves, talking about the church, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. Now we are a spiritual house built on the rejected cornerstone and living stone of Christ. That's what the context tells us. And that we have the privilege to be a holy priesthood who are offering up spiritual sacrifices as worship to God. God has called the church to be that and to do that. And we have the great privilege as church members, as, as a church, to experience that and to reflect that as part of who we are in Christ. And so this is an amazing image that should increase our awareness that God's very presence, his dwelling is in our midst as we meet. Friends, God is here. And we are coming as living stones gathered together in a corporate context here and God is present because we are present. It's a powerful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And the last one is this. That's not the last one. Almost the last one. The household and the dwelling of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Um, I want you to 
well, we'll pick it up in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens of the, with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this metaphor teaches that teaches us how God inhabits the church, that it's different than how God inhabits the soul. Now certainly, because of what Jesus Christ has done, when the, the veil of the temple was torn, we now have free access to the throne of grace, right? So we can boldly come. But there's something about the church. There is order in the church. There is authority in the church. There is power that the church has been given. There's this corporate nature of the church as it gathers together. And so this image should increase our awareness of God's permanent presence in his earthly church. And the final one here is this, the pillar and the support of the truth. Or as if the um, ESV says, the pillar and the buttress of the truth. And buttress really is, a, I think, a far more robust word. If I delay, you may know how one ought to have or behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so, listen, no other institution on the planet has this as its mission. The church has been given the responsibility to be both the pillar and the buttress of the truth, to stand firm and uphold God's truth through thick and thin. If we do our job well, truth stands. If we don't do our job well, truth unravels. That responsibility is given to the church. That is a picture of the church. It's a beautiful picture of the church that, that reminds us that truth matters to God. And if truth matters to God, then truth matters to the church. And if that is the case, then truth matters for those who are to be leaders in the church. Those leaders, along with the rest of the body, are the guardians of right doctrine. They must, as Titus 1.9 says, hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So we are, as a church, given this wonderful responsibility to be the upholders, supporters of truth. So we define the church in both universal and local terms, those who belong to God and are called out and gathered together. We have seen numerous descriptions of the church that encourage us to see how beautiful God's church is. But now we must ask, what is God's desire for his church? What is God's desire for his church? Now, this might be different than what you were expecting. Why does the church exist? What has God called the church to? What does God's, church, God's word teach us about God's goals for the church? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Now, this is such an amazing passage of Scripture. Again, packed with just so much stuff that we need to chew on. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race. Just think about that. 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Wow. (laughs) But it's the next word you need to notice. That. Why are all these things true? It's awesome that we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. But there's a reason that God has called us to those things. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him, that's talking about Christ, who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have been called to proclaim his excellencies. That means his qualities, his attributes, his accomplishments, his beautiful and glorious nature. So we're called to declare and display the glory of Christ to the nations. Glory basically is a word that that is used to describe everything that there is about Jesus. His attributes, his works are all on display. And they're going to be on display, how? Through the church. We have been called to do that. So we're to talk about it. We're to sing about it. We're to rejoice about it. We're to celebrate who Jesus is as a church. Do we do that? Is that what Gateway Bible Church is about? And is that what you are about as one who attends church? As one who is a part of the church? Secondly, I want us to go to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And here we find in verse 6, a little longer section, but bear with me because this all kind of comes together and is so powerful as we come to the end of this little section. Verse 6, Ephesians chapter 3. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ or a promise in Christ through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The same thing as what we just read, same idea and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. The plan of the gospel, the plan of redemption. Verse 10, so that through what? The church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers And authorities, where? In the heavenly places. What? Get this. God is calling the church to display the manifold wisdom of God, as it is in your notes, to the spiritual powers of heaven. This is such a breathtaking statement about the church. God's wisdom will be seen, praised, and known through the church And Satan, the fallen angels, and holy angels are all, by means of what the church is doing in their praising and declaring the manifold wisdom of God, they are all, 
brought face to face with the grandeur and the glory of God through what the church does. In other words, when we as Gateway Bible Church preach the gospel, hold on to the promises of God in his word, we are making known God's wisdom to the heavenly beings. Somehow, in some way, God's church is the means by which they are made aware about God's wisdom in a way that they did not know before. So as, as the, the, the heavenly realm looks at the church, when the church exercises its responsibility in such a way that it is declaring the, the various glories of God, the, the various wisdoms of God, those in the heavenly realm are either held accountable or they're stepping back with joy and awe. The holy angels are learning from the church about the character and the purpose and the plan of God. That is pretty powerful. The heavenlies are watching what's going on with Gateway. And they're learning by how God works through us about his nature, about his glory, and about his beauty. Finally here, to display the authority and the power of Christ. Matthew chapter 16, 18, and I tell you, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. When the church flourishes, it is because of God who is building his church. We are not building his church. How can we build the church? You can go to all sorts of websites. You can get all sorts of material in in the mail and email. that says, this is how you can build the church. No, I don't build the church. We don't build the church. We do what God has called us to, and he will build his church in his way, in his timetable, according to his plan and his purposes. He is the authority. He is the power. So what this this rock that Jesus is talking about, my understanding, my consideration, my interpretation of that is that what's being talked about here is Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. That has been the foundation of, of the church through the ages, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And based on that confession, the apostles went out, and what did they preach? Jesus is the the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And that was the foundation of the message, repeated and repeated and repeated, and still is the message today. So the goal of the leaders in any church is for the church to be what it is meant to be. Let me say it again. The goal of the leaders in any church is for the church to be what it is meant to be. In other words, what God determines that church should be. Now, friends, there's a lot of pressure out there. There's a lot of pressure out there from American Christian culture for, you know, a church to grow fast. Can I just tell you something? If we really, really wanted to, we could pack this place out. We can find mechanisms to do that. We could do things that are so attractional that people would come. That isn't necessarily what God is calling us to do as the church. 
is not just to get numbers of people in here, but it is to slowly and faithfully proclaim the word of God and, and instill the word of God into the lives and the hearts of those who are part of his family. And in so doing, we taking responsibility to share the gospel and keep people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ through our efforts will slowly establish a church. And a church will grow slowly. A church will develop. And there are some churches that have been around for a long time that are faithful, that are diligent, that are passionate about God, that have not grown by leaps and bounds numerically, but they have been growing deep. And they've been faithful in proclaiming God's truth. But we in America, we like the fast move, don't we? We like things to happen. Lickety split. Wow. See how many people. Wow, they had this and that. You know what? Maybe there'll be a time when we have lots of people and we do something that has some pizzazz, but may it never be something that eclipses what we are truly about. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the robustness of that gospel, the clarity of that gospel, and the power of that gospel to change people's lives. So what we want to be able to do then is to be or to be sure that what we call the church is what Jesus is willing to call the church. <laughs> that those two things match. But it's, it's him who has to actually build the church. Now, some final concluding thoughts bringing this all together. Because the church of God is so incredibly precious, valuable to God, we must recognize some bottom line principles from our study this morning that I think are going to help us as we think about moving ahead, not just in establishing a biblical eldership, but a proper church. You understand? This is not just about putting guys in leadership. This is about being the church that God has called the church to be. The first thing is this. The church is not just another organization. It is a unique gathering of regenerated Christ followers who are committed to knowing, applying, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in all its glory. It is to be built God's way and according to his guidance, not man's way or with man's clever or manipulative strategies, and there are many of them. The church is unique. It's not just another organization. Secondly, the leaders of the church are not just administrators, organizers, managers, or charismatic people. Certainly, those leaders, many of them will be organizers, administrators. Some might be charismatic. Some people may not be. But they are uniquely qualified and called to a great responsibility to feed, to guard, to protect, and thus shepherd the flock of God, to be guardians of the truth of God, to nurture and sanctify God's people, to proclaim the, the centrality and the necessity of Christ and his gospel for living, to lead God's people in offering up spiritual sacrifices of worship, service, and praise, to nurture family relationships, to lead the church in declaring God's glory and wisdom to the nations and to the spiritual beings in heaven. That leadership has a great responsibility. So they're far more than simply administrators, organizers, and managers. And that being true, since the church is so precious to Christ, how we lead the church is of great importance to him 
and then also to us. God loves his church. He has established how leaders should lead his church. To lead then is a huge responsibility and is not to be taken lightly. So when we establish leadership in our church, it's not because these are, you know, my good buddies. We are deliberately pursuing a process where we are seeing, observing, experiencing those who are called into leadership. Why? Because God's church is so precious, because God's church is so important to him. And we have the great privilege of being a part of that church, and we want his church to be guided and led in a way that would bring honor and glory to his name. Now, friends, today, two years later, in the beginning of our church, we can celebrate all the different ways that God has been at work in Gateway. In a little while, we're going to break. We're going we're to have a picnic together. We're going to enjoy some food together. And a little while into that, after maybe we've had some food and we've eaten and we're, we're kind of stuffed and we're starting to fall asleep, I'm going to call you guys together. I want us to come together. And I would just like for, for anyone who would have it on their heart, just how has Gateway been a means of God's work in your life? Think about what you could share. And it can just be a couple of sentences, but just what is, what is Gateway meant to you? How has God at work through Gateway and you being a part of Gateway been a blessing? And, you know, just questions like that. And we want to give you an opportunity on this day to celebrate together. Because, friends, these have been two great years. And a lot has taken place during those two years. And God is still at work. He is not done with us yet. And we look forward to many more years as Gateway Bible Church. We celebrate today, though, the beauty of the church that God has created, that we have the privilege to be a part of. Lord, thank you for your goodness. We take seriously this matter of your church. Lord, because you do. And Lord, we take seriously this matter of leadership in the church, Lord, because you do also. And Lord, I ask that as we have desired to be faithful, as we have desired to move down a path of, of carefulness and purposefulness um, and um, just the ability to, to see leaders um, in their element and on display, Lord, that we, as we, as we move ahead and, 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 and crystallize this, this uh, eldership in, in the months to come, Lord, that we would have full understanding of what we're doing and how we're doing it and why we're doing it, and Lord, how important it is to you. And Lord, undergirding all of that, may we see, Lord, that your church is precious and beautiful to you. And so we need to be careful to treat it, Lord, with, with care and, and, and a, an awareness, Lord, of the fact that uh, it is so valuable. Guide our thoughts, Lord. Help us to celebrate today. Help the fellowship to be sweet. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.